Well, I hope you've had a sweet time here at retreat, as I have, and our family has enjoyed it uh, a ton, and we are just so grateful for uh, the fact that all you guys have been here, and it's been just a sweet time together. I'm going to steal a stand. The other one is on sinking sand. Um, but I want to respect the headphones, too. You know, let's don't go on the ground. I want to begin by asking you a question. That's a simple question. What does it mean to fight? What does it mean to fight? You might think of, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but you might think of what you're doing right now. Fighting to stay awake. Or what you might be doing tomorrow. Fighting a cold. Maybe you're on the north side of the campus and you are ready in a few years to fight a bill in Congress. Or this school thing will turn it into something else for you and you're going to be fighting forest fires. Uh, you might think of the fight for women's suffrage or fight for certain causes like that that are greater than ourselves. You got to fight for your right to party. You guys don't listen to Beastie Boys, do you? It's a good thing. In Jude, what does it mean to fight? What does it mean to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the, to the saints? Uh, what does it mean to fight after everything that we've looked at? Uh, now, by way of review, we looked at, in verses 1 through 4, the, at the preciousness of our faith. We looked at our faith found in Christ, our faith that is worth fighting for, our faith that is assailed, all marks of a faith that is so dear to those who have that faith, finding in it the very salvation of our souls. Then we went on yesterday, a wild adventure, observing these unreasoning animals from all the centuries. And we put together the profile of a false teacher. And in that we saw the need to grow in discernment and to strengthen our faith and to kill sin. And with all that, the need to examine ourselves. Well, if verses 5 to 16 were... Uh, why we must contend and who we are contending against, then here at the end of Jude's letter in the final nine verses, we have how we contend for the faith. Uh, this is how we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. These verses show us not only the things we must do, to contend, but also the posture we must have as we contend for this faith. You see, our faith is never a faith that is just a list of things to do in and of itself. It's a faith that as we do the things God has laid out for us, that in following the instruction He lays out for us in His Word, 
It is of the gracious provision and incredible help he gives in his word and by his spirit that we draw from in sections like these. So I don't want you to see this as a list of things to do, but of provision from God by his grace. This portion of scripture here that closes out the book of Jude helps us to see that contending for the faith, what instinctually for people like us, uh, we might think is something of a roll-up-your-sleeves, elbow-grease sort of task, uh, a take-up-your-weapon, uh, put-on-your-boots-and-your-uniform put kind of task. But we'll see here in this passage, it's through and through, instead, uh, an endeavor thoroughly saturated by the grace of God. You see, every time God has something for us to do in his word, he always fully supplies the strength and the grace for that task. Every time he commands us or asks us or compels us to obey him or to follow him in a specific kind of way uh, or to do something like contending for the faith, he supplies. He gives grace. He gives strength. And that's what we see in this passage. Yes, indeed, contending for the faith requires our energy and our effort. And it demands our obedience. But the end of the book of the Jude, the end of the book of Jude shows us the grace of contending. So if you aren't there already, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Jude, and we'll be in verses. 17 to the end of the book in verse 25. Uh, let me read our text for this morning and then we'll pray. Jude writes in verse 17, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us, that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, this morning we ask your help. It's been a long week, it's been a long weekend, so we ask, Lord, um, help us to uh, be attentive, uh, give us your spirit to work in our hearts. Uh, Lord, we ask as we attend to your word, help us to contend well for the faith in light of what we see here this morning. In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. 
Yesterday was a, a, a tough, a chewy, leathery piece of scripture that we had to work through. It left us in a place where, Lord willing, this was constructive in your life. It left us in a place of self-examination and soberness as to the reality of apostasy and of the character and nature of false teachers and of unbelief. And so if we are thinking rightly and humbly about the middle of the book of Jude, with a sort of rightful fear and sober consideration as to our own faith and the status of it, we might be admittedly in sort of a place of tension in our hearts, thinking, uh, is this me? I hope it's not me. Well, it's not me, but I see a little bit of that in me. And so what do I do? And yet in God's kindness, we are led right into this incredible comfort and guidance that we find in this text. Uh, these verses don't alleviate the seriousness and the urgency of the message of Jude. But they do help us to think and to pray and to talk about these issues with a proper perspective grounded in the providence of God. These verses shouldn't let us off the hook in any kind of way, but they help us. They point us in the right direction. Uh, they lift up our hearts and encourage us. I think we often think of providence, the providence of God, as control. Uh, some sort of control that God's, uh, God has. Uh, uh, God's sovereignty put into some kind of self-glorifying action. And in one sense, we'd be right to think of it that way. We, uh, we'd be right to think of it as his sovereignty put into uh, self-glorifying action. Uh, although that's flattening it a little bit, maybe. Well, here in this passage, we see uh, in full display the providence of God. But the providence of God in that, the providence of God is his caring provision for his people. And that's manifested here in the provisions he makes for us as his people, as those who are to contend for the faith. And so let's look at the grace of contending in four parts, four guiding principles for those who contend, four guiding principles that really are gracious provisions, the guiding principles that are the grace of God given to us in these things. They're for us, for those who are to contend for the faith. The first gracious provision that is a guiding principle is this. This guiding principle is to remember this warning. Remember this warning. The first principle, the first provision we see in this passage is a simple call to heed the warning of this letter and the 
warning of the apostles. It is the handle with care sticker that is on your package when we get it in the mail. It is the extra little reminder uh, to uh, remember the warning that we've heard these past few days. It's to, verse 17, remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's to remember the predictions about the reality of false teachers. The warning we've seen in Jude of imposters and false faith and perverted grace. We are to remember these things before these things become an I told you so and we're neck deep in the muck of false teachers. In five years and in ten years and in 20 years, after you've lived just a little bit more of life, the initial shock and awe, the helpfulness and the clarity of the Tuesday noon siren of Jude will begin to wear off. I can all but guarantee it. It'll wear off. Uh, You might get used to it, or you might forget about it. Basic to contending is remembering. Remember this warning. What Jude has warned us is what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Turn there with me, Acts 20. Acts 20 is a chapter that you should know um, and you should get to know because it is so helpful in thinking about what ministry is all about. Uh, Paul is saying goodbye for the last time to the Ephesian elders. And just think about it with me for a moment. Uh, back in the first century, this wasn't goodbye, I'll, I'll text you sometime. Uh, this wasn't goodbye, I'll see you after the summer's over. Uh, this was goodbye probably for good even in Paul's mind and in the Ephesian elders' mind, as they uh, said goodbye and parted ways, they knew that this was probably the end in terms of uh, the actual friendship on a, on a face-to-face level. They had done so much ministry together. And Paul encourages them and charges them to uh, do ministry in a way that is selfless and uh, full of what God might have them do as shepherds of the flock. Look at at verse 28. Finding my way. Verse 28. It's the middle of Paul's charge. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And then right on the heels of that, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, here in Acts 20, uh, Paul sets this bar that we see all over the New Testament in 
First and Second Timothy and in Titus to care for the flock of God. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you. And then right against that, Paul gives this prediction, this warning of fierce wolves who will rise from among you. Sound familiar? It's what we see in Jude, those certain people who have crept in unnoticed. And so for us, to remember this, mo- this warning is to heed these warnings, whether from Paul or from Jude or, or from Peter, uh, this reality of false teachers that has been and will continually be. To be more precise, in Jude 18, uh, Jude is probably referring to 2 Peter 3.3, 3, where it's pretty much exactly the same words. Uh, speaking of the increasing presence of those who scoff at God, those who mock Him and His Word, who scoff at truth and pursue their own pleasures. Here in Jude, Jude points out that it's it's these kinds of people who cause divisions and strife in the church. He says they are of the world, not those who are called out from the world. These people, Jude says, are devoid of the Spirit. Striking sort of thing to say about somebody else, but it's true from what we've seen. Look at 2 Peter 3 with me. See where this is coming from. 2 Peter 3. If you remember, we talked about 2 Peter 2 being sort of a parallel passage for Jude. The prediction that Jude sort of is saying, hey, you've heard this before. And so in 2 Peter 3, the chapter after, uh, there is much help for us. And this is probably where Jude 18 comes from. Look, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. This is now the second letter, Peter writes. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Get this, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He goes on and says, Do not overlook this fact. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Friends, to remember the apostles' predictions is to see the world and to see the reality of life and of death and of God's gracious gift of salvation and of his patience that we might repent, is to see all of these realities 
outside and above and better than your own perception and your own valuation of those things. It is to see and to know that he is God and there is no other. To remember these predictions is to see and to remember that scoffers will arise even from within the church. And therefore, it is to be expected. But it is to be expected in light of the reality of the God who was and is and is to come. The God to whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The God who is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's how we remember the warnings of the apostles. In light of the gracious salvation we have in God, and that which is extended to the whole world. Peter's prediction and Jude's prediction of this kind of wayward faith that we've been looking at that leads others astray should sober us and cause us to examine our own lives as hopefully we have this weekend and will continue to But these predictions should also cause us to savor the preciousness of the grace of God in our own lives all the more. And that's why these predictions themselves, these verses, these warnings, these helps, are a grace. They're a provision of God for his people so that we can anticipate and that we can contend for that which we do believe. There's a second guiding principle that we see in Jude, the end of Jude. A guiding principle, again, that really is a gracious provision, and that is in verses 20 and 21. Keep yourself in God's love. Keep yourself in God's love. Love. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. As we near the end of this brief letter, Finally, in these two verses, we get to the very heart of how we are to contend. We read in the first, on the first night in verse 3 that we were to contend, and we've been wondering this whole time, how are we supposed to do that? Well, here in these two verses, we have the very heart of that answer. As Jude ends this letter to these beloved saints, beloved by Jude himself, but beloved by God, it's what he calls them here, beloved. It's how he started this letter in verse 1, reminding them of God's love for them, and here he instructs them to keep themselves in that love. Now, there's really a lot of helpful instruction in these two verses 
But after all we said about uh, hermeneutics, how to study the Bible last night, about uh, pressing further and deeper, I realized in studying this passage here, this verse, grammar really helps. Types of verbs really help. Sometimes it's just helpful to see that, to diagram your sentence, to parse it a little bit. Now you don't need to know Greek to see this. If you look at verses 20 and 21, there's several verbs. There's four verbs. And a couple of them have what us lay people call ing verbs. <laughs> and there's another one, namely the one, the beginning of verse 21, that is not an ing verb. It is the main verb. Keep. Just keep. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, all of that, that's a short North Campus Sky lesson for how to think about this verse and see Jude's logic. The main idea in these verses, given all of the help that we get in these, and we'll look at these verses, but the main idea is to keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, that is what God is telling you to do in these verses in the main. That is the core of how we are to contend. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Given all that we have in this letter to consider, this is the very center of that instruction. You see, perhaps the best defense against false teachers, against error, uh, against apostasy, isn't to proactively uh, go to cult group meetings and contend for the gospel. It isn't maybe to stand on Bruin Walk and look for people to poke in the eye and to fight and to contend for the faith that way. It's simply to devote your attention and your effort on the strength of your own faith. On the depth and the strength and the faithfulness of your soul in the love of God. In the love of God. This word keep is the same word Jude has used throughout this letter. In verse 1, he talked about God's keeping us for Jesus Christ. In verse 6, it's a word that refers to the fallen angels being kept or reserved for final judgment. In Again, in verse 13, again of judgment, the, except this time the gloom of utter darkness being reserved or kept for the certain people that we've looked at. And so Jude's got a, a keeping motif going on that shows us something. It shows us that all of mankind is indeed under the eternal authority of God's just keeping. His faithful preserving, both that of his keeping of usurpers, unrepentant people, unbelievers, false teachers, for final judgment, he keeps in that way, but also that of Christians unto salvation at the return of Christ. But here in this verse, the emphasis is that those who are his are to keep themselves. But we are to keep ourselves in his great love. But we are to contend. We are to strive for the faith uh, once for all delivered. 
in this way. At the core, the very heart of it is this. By staying faithful in the very love of God that bought us. We are to keep ourselves in the perfect love of God demonstrated to us through Christ while we were still sinners. What does this look like? That's what the rest of these verses help us with. Uh, That's where those ing verbs come in, the, the three other phrases. You see, as beloved saints, those loved by God, you are to keep yourselves in the love of God by first building yourselves up in your most holy faith. This is similar to what Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 7, of our walking in Christ. He says, uh, you are rooted and built up in Him. This idea of increasing our love and in our knowledge of Christ. I'm reminded also when I think of building up of the community building project of the church that is in Ephesians 4. Look at that with me. Ephesians 4. I'm reminded of Christ building his church, but us being those who are a big part of that, an integral part of that. Ephesians 4, and look at verse 15. Paul says they're rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in the most holy faith, both individually but also collectively as the body of Christ. That is our responsibility to one another. And we are to do so via the truth of God's word and in the affection we have for the Lord and for one another. And so we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith by deepening our roots in the soil of God's word. That we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith by building ourselves heavenward in our affections for Christ and for the hope of heaven. That we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith Uh, by going forward in our growth for holiness. And we are to do so individually, and we are to help each other do those things as well. Out of our love for God and our love for one another, uh, this is what we are called to, to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Back to Jude. If you're in Ephesians, back to Jude. Uh, Look at the end of verse 20. There's another way we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. By praying in the Holy Spirit. By praying in the Holy Spirit. Uh, As opposed to the ungodly false teachers who are devoid of the Holy Spirit and who operate in their own sort of high-handed rebellion against God, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. That we are to constantly be submitting ourselves 
uh, actively, readily, regularly in prayer, uh, that in all of the difficulties of contending, uh, as we face the inevitability of these certain people coming from even amidst us, uh, having questions and difficulties and uncertainties of our own along the way, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit, casting every care upon Him, making every request known to God, aligning our wills with the Father, praying, not my will but yours be done. There's a humble submission in this that is so contrary to the rebellion that we've seen of these certain people in Jude. And there is, as a result, a kind of quieting, comforting rest for our souls in this kind of prayer. So when you think you don't have enough time, pray. When you think of uh, that first, but you think, I'll get to that later, pray. Uh, When you think, uh, there's a million things I need to do to be a good steward of my life in this season, commit those things to the Lord in prayer. As you engage other people next week and you think, I'm going to go and contend for the faith via conversation, pray. And by praying, you are building yourself into uh, what we have here in this book. You're keeping yourself in the love of God as you pray. Finally, in verse 21, we see that keeping ourselves in the love of God involves waiting. Uh, Look at verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Uh, This is a reference here to God's final demonstration of mercy toward us. You see, we're not waiting for the mercy of God in salvation. We have it. But we are waiting for the demonstration of mercy that Jude is referring to in that last day. But it still is His mercy. It's His withholding of His judgment that is demonstrated in the return of our Savior Jesus Christ who will take us up with Him. This kind of patient yet eager waiting we see here in verse 21, we see all over the New Testament. This is the sort of angst we see in Romans 8 as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the resolute hope we are to have in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it it we await a Savior. Uh, This is Titus 2, the blessed hope we have, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice here, though, that in Jude specifically, what we are waiting for is the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, built into Jude's understanding of the blessed hope for which we await is a humble recognition that we await that which we have, but that which we don't have in full, and that which we don't have yet in finality, and not in certainty, but in completion that we too, like all of mankind, deserve the wrath of God for our sin. It didn't take much for us in the book of Jude, just a couple of verses, to help us zoom out even just a little bit 
to see that because of our own sinful rebellion against God, we didn't even have to be a false teacher to deserve this, that we deserve the very same eternal destiny as those certain people who deny God outright and twist his grace. That we were headed that way too. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were driven by the desires of our flesh and rebellious against the authority of God, just like these certain people. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son to live a perfect life and die the death that we deserve such that on the merit of Christ and on the merit of Christ alone, we would be spared from eternal hell and made right with God. It's the good news of the gospel. Amazing grace. And it is only by his gracious withholding of the punishment we so justly deserve, it's only by his mercy that we can know the love of God. That verse 1 is true, that we are beloved in God the Father. But it's also only by his mercy that we can keep ourselves in the love of God. As we await this full and final demonstration of that mercy on the last day, I think in understanding the tone of this waiting, there's again no greater help than Second Peter, Second Peter, turn there again. Second Peter three. Look at verse ten. This helps us to understand the very tone of what Jude is talking about as we await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter three, verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Drop down to verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I love Second Peter 3, and I love Jude 20 and 21, because these verses help us fix our gaze on heaven. And yet, while still earthbound, to keep our hearts stayed on the love of God, looking to heaven, but still well-grounded and well-rooted in Him. In these verses, uh, there is here what may be, for you and me, a surprising amount of focus on ourselves as we are to contend for the faith. 
And I think that's the wisdom of Scripture in knowing our hearts and in knowing our tendency to want to move on faster than we should. Uh, Our tendency to uh, move on from tending to our own souls uh, the way we ought. Jude shows us here and brings our focus back here that our first concern when wolves arise ought humbly be to keep ourselves in the love of God. To keep ourselves in the love of God. Uh, To look at these wolves and to look to God and to, to immediately think, what must I do to keep myself in his love? And to turn our attention to those things and to keep faithful in those things until that last day when that mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ is finally demonstrated in full. I think this focus on ourselves is good and right for us to see the paths of righteousness and stay within what God has laid out for us uh, for life and godliness. That is exactly how we contend. We keep ourselves in the love of God. But it's it's exactly how we are to contend also together by being God's people, faithfully so, keeping ourselves and each other in the love of God. That's our focus, simply so, rightfully so, with a kind of unity and strength of faith and faithful living together as a force for truth in the hands of our chief shepherd. Keep yourselves in God's love. We see a third guiding principle that really is a gracious provision for those who contend, and it's extend mercy to others. Extend mercy to others. The book of Jude has already made clear that God will rightfully judge false teachers. Those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ are reserved for a punishment of eternal fire. Know this and know this for sure. As scary as these fierce wolves are, the Almighty God, whoever watches over His children, has got that part covered. He will judge we've seen that we've seen that all of these certain people will be judged in final judgment there is a certainty and a finality and a rest for us who are his who fear these kinds of situations but that kind of judgment is the terrifying truth of opposing God and we've seen that in full this this weekend Well, here in verses 22 and 23, we see not the judgment of God, but the provision of God for how we ought to engage those amongst his people who may be in some form taken captive by these certain people, these false teachers. Perhaps the people in verses 22 and 23 are those who whose ears have been tickled by the ideas of these false teachers, or they're tempted by the opportunity for the flesh that these false teachers show, or they go to the Welcome Week events of these groups on campus. Yet these people, 
simply and only by the grace and the mercy of God? Maybe not quite yet have fully sold over to the authority of their own flesh. There's a sliver of daylight in this. There's an opportunity here for us. There's a chance to do God's good work in salvation potentially here. In this instruction to minister to the plus ones of these certain people, I believe we see also the posture of our contending. Here we see a refreshingly humble, struck by mercy kind of posture. The main idea in these two verses is that we are to extend the same mercy of God that we ourselves have been given. That's a principle not unfamiliar to most of you. It's a principle that we've seen in James and in others of our studies, even in Philippians as well, that we are to extend the grace and mercy of God that we've been shown ourselves by God. But the kicker here is that we are to do so in a way that reflects the gratitude we have. It's the manner in which we do that. We're to do this in a way that reflects the gratitude we have for having been given mercy. You see, if you think about verses 14 to 16, the prophecy of Enoch, the way that Enoch described those ungodly people is that they do and say ungodly things, what? In ungodly ways. We who have been shown mercy, we show mercy in a merciful way. We show mercy not holding it over people, thinking we've made it. We show mercy as those who have been given mercy. And it's obvious in the way that we talk about God's mercy. We are to be agents of God's mercy in this endeavor. So much of this weekend so far has been about discernment and contending for truth. Here, Jude shows us that the very integral part of that contending is extending the mercy of God to those on whom God may still have mercy. And the point is, maybe we don't need to know, or maybe we're not even sure ourselves where exactly this person might be in light of eternity? The answer isn't uh, to have an exact determination about where this person stands in eternity. The point is for us to simply extend mercy and trust that God might work. Now there are different kinds of people here in these verses, but all of them are entangled, ensnared in some way with these false teachers. And so Jude shows us briefly how to deal with, how to minister to these different kinds of people. There's a kind of empathy here. There's a kind of patience here. This takes prayerfulness. This is the kind of sober-mindedness that is rare, a, a kind of wisdom and discernment that doesn't jump to conclusions but waits on God. I love these verses because they're akin to me to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It's kind of like the long-lost twin of, of 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is the sort of 
lost brother version of that verse. Here in Jude, there is a similar, a parallel assessment and empathy and discernment as to who is where and how we might best extend mercy to these kinds of people. Verse 22 describes the first group, those who doubt. These are the kind of people who have a genuine struggle, who who are asking good questions, who are initiating and asking for help, who may have struggled for uh, just a little bit of time or for a long time, uh, but who are with us and asking and pleading uh, for discipleship and help. And we ought to give it to them. Uh, We ought to have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, We ought to show people not the way because we are the ones who know the way, but we are the ones who walk along the way with them. Verse 23 shows us a second group, those whom we are to save by snatching them out of the fire. There's a vivid picture here. Uh, I wonder if uh, you've gone camping or you've been at a bonfire recently and you've roasted marshmallows and you know what it's like. It starts to melt and you, you have the reflex to want to Catch that marshmallow before it falls into the fire. Well, Jude's showing us we have a window of opportunity to uh, catch these people, snatch them and save them as from out of the fire. And that fire, by the way, is there on purpose. We've seen fire already in the book of Jude. You know what that is? With this second group, they are those who we'd hope by sharing the gospel with them and urging them and patiently holding forth the word of life and by living an example of godly integrity that we'd somehow be messengers of transforming truth for these people. Such that, and we know it's God who saves, but such that Jude says here that we would have some part in saving them. And God is gracious to give us some part in saving them. Uh, God is gracious to use us as some part of saving them. It's not separate in a way from God saving them. It is. It is God saving them. But it's God using us. And that's what we're called to. Verse 23 also shows us a third group. Those to whom we are to show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh, Jude says. That these are those whom we don't know where they're headed. We don't know. And what I mean by that is, I think we know. We know. But because we're not God, we don't know. We fear for where they're probably headed. But what Jude is showing us is not the status of their souls, but he's showing us that there's still time. It's 2 Peter 3.9, just uh, again. God is patient, wishing that all would come to repentance. There's still time with a patient God. These people, we are fearful for their souls, prayerful for their repentance, And yet we are to be, and this is the caution that Jude tacks on to the end here, we are to be so aware of the peril of sin 
and the perversion of grace that is in these people's lives, that is in this kind of person's theology, that we ought to be humble enough and, and awareness of our, uh, and aware of our weakness enough uh, to be aware of how we too could be affected by this kind of sin and this kind of thinking and this kind of perversion of grace. That we could be affected by the very stain of the garments that they wear is the picture. A stained garment and that we wouldn't even want to touch that. This is a warning that we ought not think ourselves too strong or we might get burnt too. Even after all of the mess in uh, this book, in especially verses 5 to 16, here, the end of the book, Jude has us in a place where we ought not to jump to conclusions about those affected by false teachers. We ought to be instead in a posture of tenderly extending mercy, the very mercy that we ourselves have been given. What a gracious provision for us, this kind of responsibility that we get to have. But what a gracious provision of God to these people who we don't know where they're headed. This, friends, is the tearful, fearful ministry you and I will often face if we faithfully serve God. You may never wish to or expect to be in this kind of place, but when wolves prowl, this is the ministry God calls us to. With the mercy found in the gospel as our anchor and our compass, we are, we are to extend mercy to those deceived by these unreasoning animals. The fourth and final provision that we'll look at quickly here in verses 24 and 25. Uh, this provision that is a guiding principle for those who contend. Worship the God who keeps. Worship the God who keeps. The book of Jude concludes with this incredible doxology. One of my favorites in all of scripture. It's brief and beautiful. Packed with Godward perspective. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We've seen that you are kept by you keeping yourself. We see here, you are kept by his keeping you. So, which is it? The answer is yes. For Jude, there is no difference. There is no distinction. Uh, God keeps you and you keep yourself. Uh, both are very real and both are very necessary realities. Uh, here, though, in these last two verses, the overarching reality of God's sovereign power to keep you to the end is what Jude turns our gaze to as he finishes this great letter. 
You see, uh, above the fray, above the sound of clashing swords in this ages-long battle between good and evil, grace and sensuality, above all, that, above all of that fray waves the banner of God's providence and protection of those whom he loves. It's the promise of the very power of the God who is able to keep you from stumbling. He will protect you and see you through. His power is able also, Jude says here, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You see, not only is God able to keep you in the palm of his hands and to make provision for you to faithfully contend all the while, but it is in his perfect justice and in his powerful providence that he has and he can provide for us by the blood of his son Jesus the ability to present you blameless such that you are kept from judgment and given to the salvation of Jesus that we have in that last day. Friends, he who calls you is able. He will surely do it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will keep you from stumbling and present you blameless in that last day. And for us who know that grace and that mercy, it's cause for worship. It's cause for doxology. It's cause for us to raise our hands in praise. It's cause for us to sing a song about it. It's cause for worship with our mouths and with our lives and with our contending for that very faith. One of the most important truths that we've looked at this weekend is that these certain people, these unreasoning animals, these apostate false teachers, are marked by their rejection of God's authority. Uh, we called that the heart of a false teacher. The heart of a false teacher is that they reject God's authority. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny the loving lordship of Christ. They don't want it. Yet we also saw that over and against that rebellion, God has judged and God has kept these certain people for final judgment that they will face. Their rebellion has changed nothing about our God. Uh, the everlasting God who was and is and is to come has been and ever will be on his throne, usurpers rebelling or not. You see, while these false teachers reject God's authority, he's never lost his authority. In reality, it's never actually been in question. It's just been rejected by these people. The judgment of these certain people in eternity will be their terrible and awful experience of the very authority that they've rejected all their lives. For us, though, who are his, for us, those whom he loves, that same authority of God has been and ever will be a reality as well. 
but not hanging over our heads as if in judgment, but for us who have accepted and submit to God's authority every day of our lives, the authority is exercised in his gracious and powerful providence in our lives as our heavenly father. And it is graciously exercised in his keeping us to the end. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth we've seen in this book. Precious truth, because it shows us the preciousness of our faith, a faith found in Christ. But it shows us scary truth, too, Father, a faith assailed, but that is a faith worth contending for. This morning you've shown us, Lord, how graciously you've provided for us in these commands, in these things we are to do. But through and through they are conduits, they are channels of how you give us more grace and abounding grace in our lives as we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So we stand grateful, Lord, seeing this kind of hard truth, but confident, God, that you will keep us and present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. And so we stand a people grateful that we have this kind of faith, a faith worth fighting for. We praise you and thank you in the name of Jesus.